Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jerry Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how will we ever overcome the battle of addiction? So Shauna, before we get into this very serious and heavy uh, episode, first tell me what's on your mind this week. Uh, well, first off, welcome back, G. We missed you. Uh, you know, it's so wonderful to see your face. Um, but so for me this week, uh, it is National Suicide Awareness Week. Um, and this is an issue that actually uh, it's very personal, near and dear to me. Um, hits very close to home. Uh, we've talked about it on this show before about my own, you know, suicide attempts and battles with depression, et cetera. Um, just last week, um, she, she now admittedly, she's not black. Doesn't mean that she doesn't count, uh, but um, a uh, indie wrestler, um, her stage name was Daphne. Um, she had appeared on Instagram live in very much so in crisis. Um, and had a pistol in her hand and you know she's like talking into the camera and she's crying about how feeling like she's so alone like do you guys not understand that I'm so alone um and then she like kind of apologizes and then ends the live it if if you're not a wrestling fan um I'm sure you're you don't really know but wrestling wrestling fans are very it's a very close-knit family very close-knit circle um, so a lot of people in the wrestling community, both wrestlers and fans like myself, saw it and everyone's just like sending her messages and trying to reach out to her. Um, even, you know, wrestlers like Mick Foley. I know y'all know who Mick Foley is. Mankind, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, all them people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Mick Foley, you know, was trying to reach out to her. There was a lot of people on Twitter just trying to get in contact with her. Um, unfortunately, the following morning, uh, she was discovered by authorities as, you know, having to have died by suicide. Um, as a person who... Uh, Again, I've had my own battles with that. I still have the note that I wrote to my family back in 2000 and family and friends back in 2015. Um, I keep that as a reminder to myself uh, as very much so a that was probably the darkest time in my life. And, you know, to look at that letter now, six years later and being like, wow, there's so many amazing things and so many amazing people that I've come across um, that I never would have had I decided that I could no longer take this thing called life anymore. Um, I wouldn't have been at the Griot. I wouldn't have this amazing job with these amazing people and my awesome team and, you know, folks like Jaren, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and doing things like meeting my brother and my niece and my nephews, you know, none of this falling in love again, like none of this would have been able to happen had I opted out. Um, so with that being said, I just want to acknowledge, like, especially this past year and a half has been wretched for all of us um, in some kind of way. And I know that this is the time where you probably feel the most alone. Um, this is a time where you probably are just like, what's the point? There's, I know I'm dealing with seasonal depression right now, uh, you know, feeling like there's just this 
air of despair that's <laughs> just around like does anything even matter if we're all gonna like just die tomorrow COVID is out here uh Taliban is out here you know like what's going on um I just want to say it does get better you and and you are not alone you are not alone you are not alone um and if you are feeling that the darkness is starting to sound a whole lot louder than all of the other good in your life, um, then please, please, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, that's 1-800-273-8255. Please do not feel afraid or like you're going to be a burden um, to help to, to, or that you, or, you know, to, to ask for help or to ask for support there have been plenty of times where I've been a babble of tears and I'm like, I don't want to call anybody. And I'm like, you know what, this is going to get really bad. I need to call somebody just to at least talk something out. So if you feel like you can't do that with your own family or friends, please call that, that hotline. Your life matters. Um, and I, I just pray that we all can continue to, to, to get through it. I promise it gets better. And there's always, light at the end of the tunnel. Indeed. And thank you, Shauna, for just being vulnerable. And I'm so happy that that letter never had to come into fruition because your light is felt and is needed in this world. And, um, and you know, I always got you, <laughs> sis, if you ever want to talk, you know, yes. I'm always here for you. Um, but it's, it's so important to, um, to hold space for people because we all, we all suffer in some way. We all cope with depression here and there. Some of, some of us more severe than others. Um, mm -hmm. and this is really important for us to talk about it in open public spaces so that people know that you're not the only one, um, dealing with these, with these things It's part of life. Um, yeah. what's on my mind this week, obviously, you know, I've been gone for the past two weeks, uh, shout out to Courtney for filling in for me, um, and shout out to Shauna for holding it down all by herself. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I was away on vacation in Barcelona, Spain. Um, it started out as a great trip. It was me and nine other Black gay men. Um, nine of all of us were U.S. citizens. And um, we were unfortunately burglarized after a, a great beach day in Sieges, which is like right outside Barcelona. Um, we came home around two in the morning. Five of us came home. The other five stayed behind to, you know, enjoy Sieges. Uh, we got home. And I go into my room and I immediately notice that my carry-on bag is just missing. And I'm like, you know, it's again, two o'clock in the morning. We had been drinking all day. We took shots on shots on shots. It's vacation, right? So, um, and then I noticed that my large suitcase was opened, which I knew I left closed. Um, I saw some of my clothes kind of like rummaged around. And then I look on my, uh, the other bed, my roommate's bed. And I see my wallets, like I have two wallets that I weren't carrying on me that had, they had nothing in them, thank God, but they were like rummaging through my wallets. Um, so then I go downstairs, I'm like, hey guys, I think we were robbed. And, and it, it, at first it was disbelieving. I think it hadn't really settled in yet. And once we realized that we were indeed uh, robbed, um, that someone was in the home while we were not there, it was an Airbnb um, and so it was this immediate feeling of violation to, to know that some stranger came into the space that you were in, this intimate space, went through your things, stole your things, 
Um, I had, you know, so a lot of valuables in that carry on bag. Um, but you know, things are, things can be replaced and I'm just thankful that no one was harmed that no one was home when this happened. Um, but the saga got worse because, uh, my friend who was my roommate, he had a Louis Vuitton like duffel bag in the room and it was, it was, it was stolen. He had tens of thousands of things in this bag, um, designer wear, jewelry, cash, um, but also sentimental things like his grandmother's wedding ring that she had for decades and she had passed away and he takes it everywhere that he goes. Um, oh. And on top of that, his passport and his green card were in that bag. So now he's stuck in Spain. And so, oh. so he, I look, it's been a long time since I've seen a grown man cry that way. But when I tell you he broke down, he broke down and I had to like consult him for like about an hour. And it was just really stressful because uh, when you're overseas in another country, you expect uh, police to show up like they do in America. And uh, the police were very nonchalant. It took them like 45 minutes to get to the house. And when they did, after we told them what happened, we showed them around the house because there was like, you know, there was some evidence of a break in. Um, they were like, oh, you can't do, we don't do police reports. You have to go to a police station. And we're like, so why are you here? Um, so we, the next morning, cause we were really tired. So we, we tried to get some sleep. We really didn't get much sleep. Um, we were, we were so shaken that we didn't, couldn't even sleep in our rooms. We, we cuddled together on the couch and just like, and tried to get some sleep. We go to the police mm -hmm. station. They send us to another police station. And then we were in there for about four to five hours uh, with a translator to like tell them what happened for the police report. Then they go through like the itemization of all the things that you lost and its value. It was a long, arduous process. And then after that, we had to then help my friend get the necessary documents that he needed to be able to come back home because he lives in Atlanta. Um, he is a, mm -hmm. he's a British citizen. So he had to go to the British embassy to get a temporary passport and then go to the U.S. Embassy for a, a temporary document for his immigration status. Um, we go to the embassy in Barcelona, and they're like, oh, you have to go to Madrid, Spain. So what? he had to fly from Barcelona to Madrid. He gets there. He realizes that the process is you have to go online. You have to make an appointment with the embassy. You have to pay a fee for the document. You show up, they interview you, and then presumably they give you the document. Well, uh, he put his information in the computer system and is saying that his records are not matching their records. Like his information is not matching their records. And so he's like, fine, I'll just show up at the embassy. He shows up, the guards barely speak English at the US embassy, barely speak English. Um, he tells them what happened. They're like, no, you have to go online. We don't want to hear it. You can't get past us. And so he's just stuck. So me, obviously, being knowing some people, uh, I'm, I'm calling uh, April Ryan, our White House correspondent, because she's very connected in government. I'm calling people I know in the administration, like, can you help? What can you do? And I spent my entire flight coming back to the U.S. worrying about him, trying to contact people. I had to buy Wi-Fi. You know, Wi-Fi is not, is not cheap. On these planes. Not internationally. <laughs> I'm on the plane. I'm just like emailing people. I'm texting people. It was a process. I, by the end of the night, I was on three-way with like Congressman Hank Johnson and April Ryan trying to help him because he represents Georgia, uh, trying to help my mm -hmm. friend. Long story short, we didn't have to go that route. He tried again. It worked. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was because we were making phone calls, but he is now mm -hmm. home in Atlanta. 
But the takeaway is, you know, be careful when you travel overseas. Um, I will never do Airbnb internationally ever again. And also be careful about how you move. You just never know who's watching. You know, we were 10 black men, uh, Americans, uh, gay. So we were obviously, we obviously stood out a lot. Everywhere we went, we drove yeah. two cars. It was a BMW or a Mercedes. So like, you know, people are watching and, you know, it's unfortunate because you, for me, it's like we are 10 successful black men and wanted to enjoy vacation and we shouldn't have to, you know, hide, um, you know, we want to live in luxury and we shouldn't have to, you know, diminish that, you know, to prevent being burglarized. Um, but much like here in the U.S., you do have to watch your surroundings and be careful. Um, it was very traumatic. Um, I've been able to process it more. Um, but overall, the takeaway is that, you know, I'm just thankful that no one was harmed and um, things can be replaced. And anything that I lost, I know is uh, nothing compared to my life. Um, and it was a lot of learning lessons, but uh, I'm just glad that everyone's okay and that my friend is home. Um, and we'll be able to rebuild, you know, that's just, it's, unfortunate. it's an unfortunate event. Um, but I learned a lot of things from this situation and, and it's not going to stop me from traveling. So listen. And any of our Griot fam, if you are into the, uh, you know, people call it voodoo or whatever, you know, if you went to the spiritual realm <laughs> stuff, you go ahead and you you say some words for Jaren and Jaren's friends, okay? Whoever stole those items, nothing good will come to you. All right, you got a you got a steely from color purple that mm-mm, <laughs> until you do right by me. <laughs> so include including them them Spanish cops. No, <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to deal with that, Jake. But this week, we are talking about drug abuse, a very uh, serious topic, which is uh, very heavy in the U.S., particularly in Black and Brown communities. Uh, There are global health organizations that believe every person should be protected by a strong public health system. Vital Strategies works with governments and civil society in 73 countries to design and implement evidence-based strategies that tackle the most pressing public health challenges. Their goal is to see government adopt promising and rapid scale intervention. To find out more, please visit www.vitalstrategies.org. For at least the third time this year, the Black community is trying to make sense of yet another death of a Black icon that has been linked to a possible drug overdose. Beloved and celebrated actor Michael K. Williams died at just 54 years old on Monday. And according to the Associated Press, the NYPD is investigating the actor's passing as a possible overdose due to the presence of drug paraphernalia in his residence, and authorities are looking for his alleged dealer. We, of course, lost legendary rappers and music pioneers DMX and Shock G in a similar manner just a few months ago. And other legends such as Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson and Prince and younger folks like rapper Juice World have all succumbed to similar circumstances. These tragic losses underscore just how heavily Black and other communities of color are disproportionately affected by addiction, as UCLA researchers report an overall increase of 42% in overdose deaths in 2020. And of that subset, the largest increase was for Black people with a spike of more than 50% in overdose deaths. We'll be joined with a drug prevention expert, Deanna King, and together we'll be taking a look at the realities and some of the misconceptions of addiction, how the pandemic is making matters worse, and reflecting on some of the lives lost to this disease. Let's get into it. So Shauna, before we get into some stats and numbers around addiction, we have to uh, acknowledge uh, the unfortunate passing of actor Michael K. Williams. 
um, his life and legacy um, will live on forever through his art. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what made him so impactful and iconic um, in our community in, in particular? Um, well, I mean, gee, you and I are both from Brooklyn. Okay. So if you, if you lived and grew up in Brooklyn, uh, quite frankly, Michael K. Williams, he's like Jada Kiss. He outside. Okay. He was, he was out there just dancing to, to house music and all this other stuff. Um, I know a lot of people remember him from as Omar Little, uh, from the wire. Um, I, Ugh, black, you know, might get my black card revoked, but you know, confessional moment, haven't finished the wire. I know, I know it'll happen eventually, but you know, I'm only up to season two. Uh, but for me, Michael K. Williams has had so many pivotal roles, but I think um, one of his most recent as Montrose, um, Montrose Freeman in, in Lovecraft Country has been Oh, it was just, it was amazing to watch. It was, it was beautiful to watch, um, you know, him portraying this, this closeted man who, I, I mean, well, hell, we didn't know if he was Atticus's actual daddy or not, but you know, oh, sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, he, he played such a complex character, um, you know, someone who, in terms of the black experience and that unfortunately applies to a lot of our older black men, you know, I, I can say for my father on from this aspect of like being abused by your, your father or your, or a parent or something like that. Um, you know, him basically having, especially, I know a lot of our gay, uh, black brothers, um, have had this experience of where your family's trying to beat the gay out of you. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it, he played, some, it was just, it was, it was pivotal. It was beautiful. Um, and one of my favorite episodes is when he's finally like hanging out. He's with, he's with the girls, honey. And he's just out here and he's at like a, a drag queen, like a drag party. And he just starts to dance and you just see the joy. And first off, I love that because I think that was an amazing juxtaposition of you know, of Montrose character, but also Michael K. Williams. If you don't know, Michael K. Williams danced his behind off, okay, on a regular degular. And quite frankly, that is how I choose to remember him. That seemed like such a joyous and, 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 an authentic moment, not just for the character that Michael was playing, but for him as well. And I think that's just something that's beautiful to see. Um, and whether I don't know that man's sexuality, you know, that's not my business, but him being unafraid and unabashed to play those characters and to give complexity to those characters. And he stole the scene in everything that he played. I don't care if he was on there for one second or, <laughs> or 18 episodes, you were paying attention to Michael K. Williams's character. Um, and I think that's just, it's an, it's an amazing, and it, it's, it's a true testament to his light and his spirit. What about yeah, you, G? Yeah. And we're sending love to Michael K. Williams' family and friends and all those in Hollywood who knew him and loved him. Um, I just want to uh, say that there's been discussions around his death and I really want us to make sure that we remember that he was a full human being who was talented and dynamic um, and he wasn't just how he died. Um, and if you want to help uh, remember his legacy, visit thegrio.com. We have an uh, amazing op-ed from Ernest Owens who writes about the impact of his roles and it, how it the impact it had on him as a black gay man and just 
of the LGBTQ plus community at large to see a black man on screen be queer and not be stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, I also Charlotte, did not watch The Wire, unfortunately, and I definitely plan to watch it now to, to honor him and honor his work. Um, but that role meant so much to those who did watch it and didn't necessarily see themselves reflected on television. Um, and I just, my heart goes, oh, I hate when we have to um, talk about these unfortunate deaths, but he lives on um, through his art and that's the way that I will choose to remember him. This week's guest is Deanna King, Program Manager for Vital Strategies Overdose Prevention Program. Since joining the OPP team, Deanna has established partnerships that have led to the development of innovative projects such as harm reduction delivery units using medical vending machines, mobile outreach vehicles that will provide naloxone and other harm reduction supplies, and a toolkit for healthcare workers who support parenting and pregnant people who use drugs. Deanna has worked in the realms of public health and criminal justice reform policy and advocacy for several years. She is an alum of the New School and Florida A&M University and is presently enrolled in John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Before joining Vital Strategies, she worked at the Drug Policy Alliance where she developed the foundation of their race and mass criminalization campaign. Welcome, Deanna, to Dear Culture. It's such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for organizing this panel or conversation. (laughs) <laughs> fellow HBCU alum. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. We love our HBCUs. So yes. first, uh, Deanna, I want to first ask you, because drug addiction and drug abuse is not often talked about, and I th- in my opinion, in healthy ways, what are some misconceptions about drug use and addiction that you've seen that should be corrected or unlearned? Um, I think primarily, it, it really just comes down to language to start. So I think we have to acknowledge that substance use is just a part of our culture, it's a part of our experience. Mm-hmm. And not everyone who uses drugs is gonna experience uh, dependence, uh, a behavioral addiction. So I think it makes it, we have to start by acknowledging the fact that it's a part of uh, the human experience and in that acknowledgement create pathways to healthy use. Uh, if there is a person experiencing uh, misuse uh, or dependence and is affecting their their health or their well-being, then it's a matter of making sure that they have access to whatever uh, treatment or harm reduction needs that they feel is needed at the moment. I feel like our drug policy uh, throughout modern history has really reinforced the notion that abstinence is the best practice, is the only way to live a life. Um, if you have any experience with substance use, and that doesn't work for a lot of people. So with harm reduction, we acknowledge that there's many pathways uh, to health, and that includes uh, substance use for a particular person, but wanting to make sure that that person is using uh, with all the tools uh, and strategies needed in order to to maintain uh, their health and well-being. Definitely. Okay. So critics have described America's drug war, quote unquote, as a two track system. So for whites and those financially well off, you know, color and race, sometimes notwithstanding, uh, substance abuse disorder is perceived as a survivable illness, right? Whereas for people of color and poorer Americans who struggle with drug addiction, they're more, they're more frequently faced with incarceration. What do you think is like, how do we go about fixing this? Um, you know, whether that's government-wise as well as just overall, just culturally. 
Yeah, I mean, with the emergence of the overdose crisis uh, in heroin and, and fentanyl, uh, contributing to irrational overdose deaths among uh, younger, wider, uh, more rural, more affluent people who use drugs, there was at least a rhetorical shift to policies that promote public health uh, and healthcare. Uh, but if you're like working in the field and practice, you're not really seeing uh, that shift contribute to a change in policies overall. Like we still have criminalization. We still, people are still uh, encountering arrest across, uh, you know, race uh, and gender because of substance use. Yes, uh, white people have engendered this more sympathetic consideration of like who uses drugs. But what we're seeing is not necessarily that changing in public policy, and that's that's where we need the work done. So, for instance, I work in New Jersey, and in Atlantic City, there is a harm reduction program that's you know been working, operating for you know over twenty years, providing services to people who use drugs and people uh, who experience HIV and AIDS. And that program is currently facing closure. And that program, you know, reaches a, a number of people, uh, black and white, regardless. But it, it, so what we're seeing is like, no matter uh, which race is associated with substance use, we still haven't really separated ourselves from like uh, drug policy that is largely punitive. Any sort of attempts to sort of erode that, that historical uh, dependence on punishment as a policy has not been enough to address this magnanimous industry that criminalizes, that places people in, in treatment settings that don't promote their health or their well-being. There's just a lot to undo uh, to address the drug war. And I feel like we're kind of stuck at rhetorical flourishes as opposed to actual investments in, in healthcare and, and, and good policy. And Deanna, obviously we know in Black and Brown communities, uh, drug abuse is uh, incredibly um, uh, felt. But oftentimes I find that we don't talk enough about it. It's kind of like much like how we talk about sex. When we talk about drugs, it's kind of hush hush. In your opinion, why do you think we have such a hard time as a community um, discussing uh, drug abuse? Yeah, I wouldn't say that's specific um, to just people, just black people. I feel like mm -hmm. drug use has been stigmatized uh, throughout the country, which makes it difficult for anyone to be transparent about their substance use. Um, both within their community, over, like overall, and within in their intimate family relationships. We just created this um, dynamic around substance use that has made it really difficult for a person who uses drugs to, to get help and support because they can't find a place to, to have honest conversations uh, about their experience and get the kind of support that they need that's not really being dictated by people who have like a single set of ideas around like the appropriate responses to substance use. I think with Black people specifically, there's just been so much harm done to our community overall attached to the drug war. So there's this desire to, to have no one use because mm -hmm. we've seen how damaging it can be, uh, mm -hmm. not just you know to someone's individual health, but to kind of the criminalization of substance use and, and the kind of traps a person can be placed in if they're arrested, uh, if they have any contact with uh, children and family services, if they have any, if they're a recipient of public housing and they lose their housing. So it's just been this really, an understood sort of clamp down to just try to eliminate substitutes and just promote this just, just say no policy 
within people's families and within people's relationships because we know uh, that Black people might not be afforded the same kind of grace um, and access to services that someone else who's more privileged uh, might experience. But I, I do think overall, we you know nationally have a problem with addressing substance use as a part of our society and mm-hmm. you know, creating you know, pathways to care and pathways to harm reduction that acknowledge that a person's use might be where they're at right now and that they're not necessarily open to, to treatment, but they might be open to some other form of care because they do want to live, but we're just not there yet. Mm-hmm. So from, and I, I mean, in your prof- professional capacity, um, I don't know if you can speak to, especially as it relates to like the youth um, and their drug use. So I, you know, have a member of my family who is an addict. Um, I'm sure there are, there are others, but I have a particular member of my family who is an addict who is younger than I am. Um, and something that I've found is Drug use, especially like if we're talking about pill popping, if we're talking about opioids and all lean, all that stuff, it's very much so, um, you know, celebrated in like the entertainment industry, right? Have you seen just from your personal experiences, like a young, like the younger generation that has started to do, you know, here goes the lean and let, let's pop a Zan to have a good time or anything like that, like, what what has been your experience on on that end or you know is it more is it something else maybe they're not being influenced by the entertainment industry and rappers or you know any of that stuff well I, I just want to start but going back to language we try to use person-centered language when it comes to substance use I'm sorry mm-hmm. about your your family member but you know mm-hmm. this is a young person who uses drugs as opposed to uh, labeling them as an addict mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of keeps them stuck in that position where they kind of lose their personhood um, and as far as young people and experimentation, like that has always been a part of youth culture to have mm-hmm. some level of experimentation and, and using for pleasure, using in social settings, using for fun. And so I think for in my work and my since my past experience working at the Drug Policy Alliance, uh, we've always tried to educate young people about safe use as opposed to discouraging all young people from using drugs because we know that not, not necess- that's probably not gonna happen. Like they mm-hmm. are, you know, you give them all the information about the harms and the health and they're still gonna make their, their own individual choice. Uh, mm-hmm. What you can do is give them the information that they need in order to safely create a, a safe environment for them to come forward um, if they are experiencing problematic use um, and they do want some level of support and care, um, making sure that treatment and harm reduction op- uh, services aren't exclusionary of young people. Because I think there's this desire um, to keep young people away from drugs to the point where they don't have any services available to them because they start them at 18, um, as opposed to acknowledging that young people are experimenting and, and using substance and, and might need some help and support and like those services should be available for, to them. So I think it's just a matter of acknowledging it that it's it's happening as opposed to um, trying to put all of our uh, health policy dollars into prevention of, of use. We should be doing you know that and educating people about some of the harms of substance use, but also really putting a lot of en- uh, en- energy into preventing some of the harms uh, of misuse and dependence uh, and experiencing addiction. So making sure that you know, people are, are getting the care that they need. And Diana, we recently, uh, we've seen a 
a few uh, high profile uh, deaths by overdose. And recently there was a death of Michael K. Williams and it's alleged that may have drugs may have played a factor in his death. And we've been seeing this time and time again. We, I think about even uh, famous celebrities like Whitney Houston and Prince and Michael Jackson. And this conversation around drugs often comes up and I feel like we don't really take the time to really let it sink in and really have real conversations around drugs. What do you think the takeaway should be and how do you think we, how should we cope or uh, make sense of these unfortunate deaths and what, or any personal feeling you have to these unfortunate losses? Yeah, I mean, I had stepped away from my phone for a minute and then just checked the news and saw the, 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 the breaking news story about Michael K. Williams and it's, it's really heartbreaking all the deaths uh, that we've experienced. Um, we've lost 93,000 people over the, this year um, in 2020 to overdose death. And I think the one takeaway that I want everyone to sort of just absorb is that per- overdose deaths are policy failures and these are preventable deaths. Uh, I was reading a story uh, about Michael K. Williams about him losing contact with his family members and the people who loved him uh, for a couple of days because he had went uh, to to Newark to use. And in that time, he lost his phone. He had lost, uh, people were trying to find him. And I think that's such like a high risk situation. So for someone with all the resources that this person has and other celebrities who had the resources that they needed to maybe use in a safer way, did not have the spaces to go to uh, where that was possible. So we, you know, in this country, we don't have safe consumption spaces. Um, safe consumption spaces are medically supervised spaces where people can use under the care of a nurse or a doctor. They exist in Canada, they exist throughout Europe, uh, and they're a way for people to use in a safe way. So if there's something that, has, that happens and people need medical support, they can get that immediately. What we try to do is encourage people to never use alone because in that situation, there's no one to respond to you. Uh, if you need help. But with COVID, you know, we're, we're seeing people in isolation. We're seeing people who need you know, social support. They're experiencing mental health uh, challenges related to this really difficult year. And we, there's not the spaces where people can turn to, uh, where they can access you know, resources if they find themselves either experiencing upticks in substance use or have just, you know, just need some place to, to go and use safely. And I think it's just really disheartening because it does happen so frequently and people mourn um, but it doesn't necessarily lead to any action and I feel like some of these deaths we talk about them as if they weren't preventable like Prince did not have to pass away Mm. Uh, Whitney Houston um, hadn't given the proper medical support uh, to if she had care for whatever cardiovascular symptoms she was experiencing related to her, her prolonged cocaine use like maybe there are other things that could have happened to sort of mitigate the harms of that acute overdose. And I think if we're upset, I, I, I see people, I see people online sort of turning into demonizing the person for using drugs and sort of blaming them for their own demise. And like, that is just a really harmful approach to this. Mm-hmm. And it really leads to some of the policies um, that criminalize and, and stigmatize substance use. What we do need to um, start putting forward or are there interventions that we know that that work, uh, like safe consumption spaces, uh, like harm reduction supplies and resources, like safe supply, like all these things that we know are helpful if we have 
a, a drug supply that is laced with fentanyl at this point to the point where you don't know what you're getting. If we have, you know, people self-selecting fentanyl, but like understanding that there's risks associated with that and they need to have access to an immediate medical care if something were to go sideways. I think we talk about overdose as if there are no solutions and what we have is a lack of political will to implement what we know works. Well, so first off, I want to go back and say thank you for, for correcting me on the, the addict language. Thank you. I didn't know that. Thank you. I definitely appreciate that. Um, and I love what you just said, you know, that these are policy failures. Um, Jaren and I were having a, this discussion a bit earlier today where I said, I think one of the issues is that we, as a culture especially, but I, I'd even go so far as to say a society, so we can include white folks in this as well, we tend to mistake drug addiction as a moral issue and not a medical issue, which is a huge problem. Um, what do you, what is your advice to those of us in the community who, you know, may not be uh, using or abusing substances in that way, but maybe we have friends or family or, you know, anything like that? Like, how do we reach those people? Because again, maybe it's not don't do drugs, you know, and, and let me show, let me shove a dare shirt in your face. <laughs> like, you know, maybe it's just, okay, well, if you are going to do it, let's figure out, you know, how to do it safely, or, you know, maybe we can wean you off of it or something like that. Like, what would be your advice to those of us who are, are watching family members and friends who are kind of dealing with this battle? Yeah. I mean, but what we say in harm reduction is that we, we want to meet people where they are. So you might have a desire to see your family member, your loved one in, in a different relationship to substance use that might not line up with where they're at right now. So I think it just all starts with a conversation. And I think what is difficult is that a lot of people are just left alone with their substance use. They're left alone because we treat it as this, this moral failing, like you said, and they can't come to anyone for support. So even just acknowledgement, like I see you, I understand that this is happening. I still love you. Like, I don't think you are in any way, you know, depraved or like, you know, however we talk about people who use drugs as if they're not real people mm -hmm. uh, because of, you know, their relationship to a substance. So just even starting there, um, I think a lot of people don't know about, you know, harm reduction resources. So like people don't know about naloxone, like unless you're in this world um, and it's like a common part of your, you know, your everyday work day, it's become part of your parlance. But if you're a person you know about, if you know a person is using opioids and the heroin, uh, fentanyl, like to be able to talk to them and say like, okay, like, do you know how to access Narcan? Like, let me make sure you have that. Do you mm -hmm. know how to use safely? Like, I will make sure that you're not using alone. Like, even if, you know, it's a matter of making a phone call to someone and saying like, hey, I'm going to use right now. Uh, can you just stay on the phone with me? And if you don't, you know, if something happens, call 911. Like, there is a website called Never Use Alone um, that offers that as a resource and support because we know that if someone doesn't get emergency care and that immediate um, you know, immediately after an overdose that they're more likely to die, unfortunately. Because mm -hmm. I think it's just a matter of like knowing what resources are available, making yourself available as a resource, as a, as a you know, support, as a, a person who's not gonna, you know, shy away from this person because they know this is happening. Mm -hmm. um, and then sort of, you know, taking their lead. And, and, it's, and I don't want to say it's not difficult um, to say that like, you can just, um, if someone is experiencing chaotic substance use and it's affecting their behavior, affecting how, you know, affecting how 
you two are relating like that that is difficult and it's a lot to carry but it's definitely harder to carry alone if it's a part of a community response a part of your family uh, response to something uh that might be a little bit easier to share like i was speaking to my partner about this yesterday that like when my i've had family members struggle and when we found out or when my parents found out because they were keeping it away from us I think the response was just to keep us away from them um, mm-hmm. and like sort of you know, icing out that family member as opposed to getting closer to them uh, and making sure that we're safe and people feel the harm of that they feel the loneliness of that and that can only make someone's use you know worse if they're feeling more isolated if they're feeling more depressed um, we want to make sure that people have community and not you know, isolated uh, and left alone with, with just their substance use if they are experiencing misuse. Um, so I guess another part of this, um, I think that we tend to fail to connect um, is that a lot of times the, the, the drug addiction or substance abuse issues, it really does have a tie-in to like mental health, right? So what kind of um, programs, I mean, it's very easy to just be like, well, go take your, take your behind to therapy. You know, it's very easy to say that. What other like mental health um, resources are available for people as part of, you know, maybe is, is that a part of harm reduction or is that something else that's being offered to folks who, you know, just how can we, how can we keep people alive? Yeah, <laughs> that is, that is a key. I mean, I feel like one of the, one of the things that like is an annoyance lingering harm of the drug war is the, the bifurcation of substance use and mental health within in government agencies um, and practices. Like if a person is experiencing um, you know, mental health issues and they need care, they can't get that in the same place sometimes in, in, a, in, a, in a substance use context or setting. We really bifurcated. Um, those two systems of care because of the way that drug use is stigmatized and then you know gradually mental health was you know considered uh, something that needed health care but that even still took you know work and then those two systems never sort of coalesced so yeah there are a lot of people with comorbidities and they would benefit you know from receiving their care in like a single setting as opposed to making them go back and forth between like a mental health care uh, area and like a health and harm reduction uh, treatment um, setting. And like Mm -hmm. that is a failure of the system. I I am encouraged uh, by programs like in Oakland, like there's a place called Center for Harm Reduction Therapy, and they are, you know, meeting both of those needs. So like providing therapeutic care uh, and then providing like harm reduction support and mobile outreach services. I feel like there's, you know, the interventions are out there. Um, they just need, you know, support. They need funding. They need, um, they need uptake. And I feel like I kind of want folks to move out of this place of powerlessness every time someone, some we lose someone, because mm-hmm. um, we're losing people all the time. Some, some of those losses feel, you know, more heavy because we all have that connection to that person. But mm-hmm. you know, these losses are always, always happening, and we do have the solutions to address them. Oh, that is powerful. Thank you so much, Deanna. Um, from limited access to resources and proper medical care to the leftover consequences of harmful policies and laws that target our communities, addiction is a disease that many find themselves battling with little to no help. So with that in mind, let's try our best to treat each other with compassion and do our best to dispel the myths and stigma around the disease so we can help ourselves and one another. Deanna, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, the work that you do is, it's, it's pivotal, it's important, and, you know, we thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me well, on. Thank you so much.
Yeah, take care, everyone. We want to remind our listeners to please support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Therapy in Color, a database of mental health professionals created to connect Black, Indigenous, and people of color to a community of healers whose goal is to remove the stigma associated with seeing a therapist. Therapy in Color was founded by psychotherapist Ashley Bryant, who uses the online platform to help marginalized communities overcome trauma and promote inclusivity in the mental health community. To learn more and browse therapists of color in a community near you, visit www.therapyincolor.org. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcastsatthegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Talusma and co-produced by Cameron Blackwell, Taji Sr., and Abdul Kadoos.